Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to continue in our Exodus series and it's going to be the last one for now uh, for a little while uh, because we're going to move into a a new series uh, in the run-up to Christmas for Advent season and then we will move in the new year into another uh, different series for uh, certainly the first three to four months encounters with Jesus so that's something to look forward to as a bit of variation. But Exodus 20 and the first 21 verses are, are our focus. We've been remembering that God has worked to redeem a people, to save a people for himself. And he has a purpose for them. And that purpose is being gradually revealed to them and to us as we follow it through God's word. And we thought last week of how God had brought them to this mountain, this Mount Sinai, in all of its um, awesome experience. The suggestion that it was a volcanic situation there. And God timed everything to absolute perfection, the sovereign God who is over it all. But he brought them there for a purpose, that he would reveal himself. And he does that through his word. Let's read Exodus 20 together. And then we'll continue this, this theme and draw something out of what's known today as the Ten Commandments. If you ask somebody to tell you something they know of the Bible, they'll probably say, oh, I've heard of the Ten Commandments. Let's read it together. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, 
lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Up to this point, God had been speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. As was said last week, the bringing of this rescued nation of people to Sinai was, that so, was so that God would unmistakably reveal himself to all of them in speaking to them. I was saying last week that this whole region of the earth at that time, which was really the, the center of most major civilizations, it was a melting pot of all sorts of ideas and people's ideas of gods, plural, in the hundreds and thousands who dwelt in the high places, who were over the, uh, the natural uh, things that they observed in life all around them. They thought these gods were there. A fabrication, uh, an imagination thing. But God was going to intervene in a way to unmistakably show us that God creates man and man has no right to create gods. But that's what we do all the time. And he's going to do it by speaking. He's not some imaginary God associated with the moon or the sun or anything else that is in creation. He is the one who is over it all. So in his sovereign control over the elements at that time, then God himself would speak to the people. And at the end of the section, the people are frightened for their lives because they're, they're hearing from God who is holy. Holy means to be set apart by infinite degree um, from anything else. That's what God is. He is holy. He is so far above everything he has created because of who he is. So therefore it's a fearful thing to encounter him. But he comes in love. God reveals himself to us by speaking his word. We see that through the word of God that we have. We thank God for the gift of the scriptures, the word of God. Just some verses that, if you want, you can make a note of, just as a reminder of how God reveals himself unmistakably in what he has made and what he says. Psalm 19, uh, the opening verses 1 to 4, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The psalmist is saying that God in everything that he has made that we see all around us is speaking to us but without words. But God in his grace then gives us words. He spoke to the people out of that mountain experience and they all heard it. In the book of Romans, Paul says in Romans 3 verse 2, when he's talking about the advantages that the Jews have as being God's chosen people in Old Testament days, he says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles. An oracle means a divine revelation. Oracles of God. They were entrusted with it. And here's the beginning of it, the Ten Commandments. They were entrusted with the spoken things of God. 
God was telling them who he was. Remember last week we said that if we're going to trust somebody's word, we need to know the person that stands behind the words. And God was awesome in his appearing to the people. And then he spoke. And we, we hear his words in the light of who he is. And he said, these are yours, take them. Moses would later say, the secret things that God has revealed to us belong to us and our children. Wonderful that God would reveal himself in his word. But then God takes a, a stage further. And Hebrews chapter 1, the opening of that book, which was written particularly to Jews who had come to faith in Jesus. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So what God started here, he continued through prophets. The people wouldn't hear God directly in the same way they did at Mount Sinai. This was a, a unique experience, but so important. But God would continue even though they said, Moses, you go and speak with God because we can't bear it anymore. God then went back to that process of speaking through intermediaries to his people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. God, in his grace, has revealed himself in everything that's made. He's spoken his word. He has spoken directly to a nation of people. And then he has continued to speak his word through prophets and others who were given understanding and revelation from himself to convey it to his people. And then he unmistakably makes himself known by coming here himself. In these last days he has spoken to us in his son. You go to John chapter 1 and it says that the word that was, was God and the word that was with God in the beginning that is responsible for having created everything. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Here is the expression of God. God steps in to reveal himself unmistakably. There's an important point about this gathering of this nation at Mount Sinai with the boundary that they had to operate within and they would come and God speaks the Ten Commandments to them. Ten Commandments were really a summary of what detail then God would continue to give to Moses and we have that later in Exodus and we have it also some of it in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus the, the instructions that were given to Moses to then convey to the nation people of Israel 613 laws if you count them all up that's what the Jews considered to be the instructions from God for life 613 but the 10 commandments are like a summary there's an important point here. God spoke to the whole nation so that they weren't just trusting one man who claimed to have some special revelation from God. That makes a big difference to faith. There are many major world religions that are founded on the word of one or two people who claim they have some special revelation from God. Here we have God who could call thousands. If he was in the dark as having existed, bring the witnesses, and one after one after one after another, thousands would come and say, I heard him. 
you don't have mass hallucinations or mass whatever the word is for mass hearings together. You don't have that. But God did something here to show himself. And Moses said it. Don't fear. God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. He's showing himself to you. He wants you to be unmistakably aware of his reality. So that your life will never be the same again. It's an important point. Because bring it forward to the New Testament. And the linchpin for Christianity is that Jesus died and was buried and was raised again. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was writing to people and he listed the people that Jesus appeared to after he was raised from the dead. And he said, and he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. So you put the resurrection in the dock and you pull hundreds to say, I've seen him, I've seen him, I've seen him. That evidence, similar to this, is it not? It stacks up for the reality of God and all that he has done and all that he is doing. No other religion in the world has such a basis of truth behind it that is supported by living witnesses. We have God here in Exodus revealing himself. We have him again, multiple witnesses at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God shatters earthbound notions that we might have about who God is because he comes in a way that is just awesome and amazing. Speaks directly. And this that we have, the word of God, is the inspired word of God. We don't have time to develop that today. We need to get back to the Ten Commandments. We read last week in Deuteronomy 4. I just want to read a little section of that to you again. Um, you don't need to turn to it. Deuteronomy 4, 12 to 13. This is just Moses later recounting to uh, the generation about to go in and possess God's promised land. He says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. It's because God is spirit. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant. <clears throat> which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules so that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. Moses was reminding the people, look, God spoke to you. You know this. And he's given us the Ten Commandments and the other instructions that flesh out the detail of those so that you might know how to live. Go back to Exodus 20, that you might live so that you will not sin. What did God say? Let's go back to the text. I've made those a couple of summary statements. There is no way we are going to tackle all ten commandments. Please don't be fearing for your lunches um, because you think I'm going through them one by one. I, I'm only going to a few observations. And the study is for yourselves afterwards. But read verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God speaks to this nation who has been rescued and has seen the working of God, has heard of God through Moses, but now is hearing from God himself, I've done this for you. And this is important because it precedes the giving of the law. It comes before the giving of the law. It's God's grace in having 
rescued and bringing a people to himself. His work, working out his decision, working out his eternal plan. The people were brought into it by God's grace. Notice the tenderness of the language. I am your God. Forget about all the other gods because they're nothing. I am your God. And I will be. In the way you live, you will show to the world that I am your God. But notice the emphasis. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've brought you out of slavery. I've freed you. I've set you free. The law that God was giving um, was a means of instructing them for the freedom life that he'd already given them. Now that's important as we understand anything about God's revelation of himself in scripture. It's always the way that God in his grace will act to redeem, to save, to rescue a people from the slavery of their sin. And at the same time then says, and this is how you're to live in the freedom of it. God doesn't leave us to make up our own commands for life. God, right at the very beginning, back in the Garden of Eden, said to Adam and Eve, who were the freest, person, freest people who ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus until the fall, he said, this is how you're to enjoy everything I've made. Do this, but don't do that one thing. It was there for them to enjoy the freedom that God intended for them. Here we have the same thing. God is bringing them into a covenant loving relationship with him. And it's in a sense stage by stage. He says, look, I've already set you free. Now live in the freedom of it. And this is how you're going to enjoy that freedom life. Do these things that I'm saying to you. So here's the point. The laws were not given as a means of achieving salvation. They were instructions to govern the lives of those who are already free. Free from their slavery. They are the means of enjoying God's great freedom. That freedom was, as I said, seen there in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. The limitation command that was given to Adam and Eve was so that they would enjoy the freedom of a relationship with God. And that limitation command, even trying to find the language to talk about it without it appearing negative, is hard. But it wasn't a negative thing. It was God, God saying, live all of this. Don't do that. It was to preserve their freedom. So God, when he says something, it's for our good. Instead, they, like us, all of us, have gone after what we think is being kept from us that we're entitled to because we think we know better than God. That's sin. And then we see the results of that. So God, again, in Exodus times, is stepping in. He says, look, I'm bringing you out of, out of slavery. I'm going to set you free. I have done it. I'm bringing you here. Now, you're a nation for me. We have a relationship. And here are the terms of the covenant, which is a covenant of love. This is how you're to live. I love you, so I've, I've saved you. Now, look at what life is all about. These, these ten commandments summarize it. You have these in your head and you live for me and enjoy the freedom of life. In Romans chapter 6, Paul 
was writing to early Christians gathered together in a church of God in Rome. And he said, thanks be to God that once you who were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's Romans 6, 17. It's not the only scripture we could go to. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave of sin. That's us naturally. We're slaves of sin. But Jesus has come as God's grace to us to defeat sin and its power over us and to break us free from it. And God intervenes in our lives to save us from the inability to not sin. It's what God has done for us. So he comes to set us free and it's by faith alone that we receive that freedom. But as Paul said to the people in the church of God in Rome, he says, you've been set free. You're no longer slaves of sin. So now you're able to be obedient from the heart. It's a heart thing. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Here it is. It's echoes of the Ten Commandments. This is how you're to live. And having been set free from sin, we're slaves of righteousness. <coughs> slaves of righteousness. Slaves has a negative connotation, but here's such a positive thing. We want to go God's way because it's the best way. God, I'll do what you say because you're a good God who never does anything other than that which is good. So what you say goes. So, we cannot be saved by the keeping of the law. The people in the time of Jesus, the religious leaders, thought that their rightness with God was on the basis of them achieving the standards of the law. And it was all about externals. The inside was just a mess. They had no regard for God. It was just what other people thought. And is that not our world today? And is that not me and you? We live so that others will see our goodness. And that's enough. That's not enough. The law does not save us. We're not saved by the keeping of the law. It's God's loving instructions for life so that we might enjoy a freedom that he offers us through faith in Jesus Christ. We're empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The reality of the Christian's experience is that when we see that Jesus in his life has fulfilled everything that the law demanded, which we cannot, as sinners, and yet has suffered the consequences of failure to keep the law, has done that on behalf of failing sinners. When we receive what God says is available to us by faith, which is a freedom from the punishment that's associated with the failure of the law, then we're brought into a freedom and God himself takes up residence in us. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Just think about that statement. God himself comes and lives in us. And then we have the power to live a life obedient from the heart that chooses his things. It's no longer slavery to sin. It's freedom to live God's ways. Just to emphasize this again, Galatians 2.16 says, We know, Paul says, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one 
will be justified. If we just take what God says after the freedom was given, then we're just doing things our way in our order. Paul says we can't do it because as slaves to sin, we can never live according to God's standard. We can live it after we receive the freedom of God. Back in Galatians 2, again, verse 21, Paul says this, If righteousness were through the law, by keeping the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why did Christ die if we could achieve our own salvation? Go think on that one. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I haven't forgotten the Ten Commandments, trust me. Ephesians chapter 2. And verses 8 through to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So faith, believing, trusting God for what he has done through Jesus is the means by which we take hold of the gift of grace and we know salvation. That's there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So at the same time that God by grace grants us saving, salvation, freedom by faith in what Jesus has achieved. At the same time he then says, right, I've started with you, this is how you're to live. Take my word and live it out. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. You still got your finger in Exodus chapter 20. If you haven't, you can find your way back there. I've got two points to make on the Ten Commandments. So in total there are three points today. One, one is that the law was given after the freedom was given by God in his grace. His continuing grace is, here's how you're to live. And as your God, I'll help you to do it. Second point is that I believe there's a simple structure to the Ten Commandments that is very important. Look at command number one in verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Look at command number 10, verse 17. You shall not covet. Now, if you're scanning then the ones in between, I think you'll see with me that there's a difference between the opening and the closing and the ones in the middle. The opening one is a matter of the heart. It's internal. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a matter of the heart and the mind. An intention of the will. You shall not covet anything that anybody else has. That's also a hidden thing of the heart and the mind and the will. Everything in between, the remaining eight, they're external matters. They're things that are obvious and evident. Notice, uh, we won't go through them all, but you'll not make a graven image. Uh, you'll not kill somebody murder somebody you'll not commit adultery 
You'll honour your father and your mother. These are things that are external and obvious. That flow out of what God sets in a sense as bookends for his law. Which is internal. So God, I believe, is saying to his people and to us. This is all about the heart. I'm coming into a covenant like a marriage relationship with you. So it's a thing of the heart. It's a commitment. And your heart is to be the thing that's engaged first. And the heart is to be the last thing that's engaged. And everything in between that you do will be shaped by what your heart loves. So we will love God for who he is. And we love God for what he gives. God's providence. That's a big uh, theological Bible word that means that God is the one who gives everything to all people at all times. If we're satisfied with all that God gives to us, we will not covet that secret longing to have something else. We won't have it. If we honour God and honour all that he gives, then everything in between will be so much easier. So the internal matters um, are then seen in the external manifestations. So get those two right and everything in between is easier. It's what Jesus gets at in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. He's talking about, he takes the law and he, he teaches about it and he shows that the people of his day were just about externalities, so many of them. He says, look, it's about, it's about the heart. It's your heart. That's what's to be changed. And when that's changed, then the outside looks entirely different. Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're enabled to do that by the empowering of the Spirit. Yesterday at the YPM, Young People's Gathering, um, I dressed Sam up in clothes that were almost identical to mine. They were my clothes. Because earlier in that passage in Colossians 3, it talks about putting things off and putting things on. So my son, who's now the same height as me, comes out and looks very similar to me. It was an external thing. God is looking for the external that is a genuine thing that comes from the heart. And the instruction given in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments there, put me first and recognize all that I have done for you and then everything in between will be fine. My third point then, I just want you to see, which I had not myself seen before until this week in its study. Read with me Exodus 25 and 6. This is, this is in the matter of then you, you don't make any idols. Um, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Can I just say something on this, just as a, a little side note? Sometimes people struggle with the fact that God is called a jealous God because we associate jealousy with sin. That's because we have a wrong understanding of the word jealous. We have jealousy and envy. Jealousy is when we want to protect something that is very precious to us. This is, this is an English lesson now. So jealousy is when we protect something that is precious to us from others coming to take it. Now that can be a sin. But if something is very precious and loved to us, then we will do whatever is necessary to protect it. Envy is the opposite. Envy is when we see something that somebody else has and we want it. 
God is never an envious God because he has everything. But God is a jealous God because he has secured a great cost of people for himself. And he will do everything to protect them. And he's given everything to protect them. So that's the sense in which we should read of the Lord being a jealous God or a jealous Lord. Just a little um, language lesson there. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. That tells us that um, things that we do have consequences generations afterwards. But we don't have time to stop there. But showing steadfast love to thousands. Listen to this phrase. Of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the first time in scripture where God speaks about people loving him. I've never seen that before. Now, somebody may turn around and say, actually, there's a, there's a verse earlier, but I, I've studied it a little bit. I couldn't devote too long to it, but I've done as best a search I could. Up until this point, we've learned that God loves people, and we've seen that people love people. But here, when God has manifested himself in the voice that was heard by the people gathered at the awesome site at Mount Sinai, God says, my love will come to those generation after generation after generation for those who love me and keep my commandments. Two things go hand in hand. So God is saying that genuine love for him, which is first expressed here in scripture, is associated with doing the things that he says are best for this life. This covenant agreement that God was bringing the people then into, this Marriage is not the best term, but God uses that, that language later in the, the scriptures to describe his relationship with Israel. It's a covenant. It's an agreement of love. So God has already demonstrated his love to his people by rescuing them. God has already demonstrated his love for us in rescuing us through the Savior who died on the cross and lives for us. No greater love. And then God says, and I've also given a way of life for you that you might live afterwards. Love me and live for me. It stopped me this week for a while to see that this statement of God saying people will love me is associated with doing the things that he says. And it here for the first time unless I'm corrected in Exodus chapter 20 you know this is not the type of love that the world thinks love is for many love is this untamable um, unknowable um, passion or emotion that just overcomes you and uh, dictates the things that you do that's not love. Love is a multifaceted thing in the scriptures. And love's, God's love is multifaceted. But the love that's here, that's seen with God for his people and us in response, is a love that is intentional toward the other. So we might not find the instructions of God's word make sense to us when we first read them. But out of love for who God is, we'll do it. Because he said, this is how you live the freedom life. 
to finish, I was interested, I think, to see that the world approaches life upside down to the Ten Commandments. God starts with himself and finishes with us. We live in a society that's all about us and in a sense works its way up and God is the last thought. We're not to be people who live that way. Christians instead are called to live are called to live for God first and for others at the same time. And that's being conformed to the image of his son. It's living like Jesus. The man who stepped into this world, God himself, and lived the life the right way up. I read in a book by Jerry Bridges a while ago, I don't know if I've shared this with you, who spoke of a, um, a fighter pilot who was ripping along in the plane and pulled back on the stick to ascend rapidly but didn't realise that they were flying upside down so pulled on the stick and straight into the ground end off disorientation can mean death we're to live the right way up and God helps us in that A.W. Tozer an American preacher um, in the early part of the 20th century said this as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. Let's pray.